The Jewish Frame, Episode 2, Little Murders. Little Murders. Little Murders is the film we're going to be talking about today. And I'm hoping that you can bring the the rabbi. Oh, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. I think there's opportunities to get rabbinic with this movie. You chose the movie. That's true. Why does this fit into whatever we're doing, Jewish movies? How is this Jewish? I mean, let's start there. All right. So I'll start with the setup here. So it's Jewish. There are a lot of Jews involved, first of all. So directed by Alan Arkin. Written by Jules Pfeiffer, starring Elliot Gould. So there's your your what principles. Year? What year is the film? 1971. What's Elliot Gould's sort of star status at this point? He's huge. Elliot Gould is huge. This is after MASH. This is after Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. So by this time, he's already pretty big. In fact, he's so big that this movie is produced under his, like, production company. He set up a little production company with a partner, and... This is before Long Goodbye. Yeah, this is before, pretty sure this is before Long Goodbye. So, you know, he's already got enough juice that he can, you know, he has his own production company, and he can make this movie. So he's a big, big star, I would say, by this time. Probably about as big as he's going to get, and he's... He was a pretty big, biggest, maybe... Odd choice for a big, bankable movie star, wouldn't you say? Today, it seems odd that he was a huge movie star. No, I, this movie, let's see, no, I'm, I meant to choose to do this movie is an odd choice. Yeah, well, it was a hit on the stage. This is adapted from a play written by Jules Pfeiffer. And actually, this is one of two Jules Pfeiffer's movies. This year, Carnal Knowledge, which was produced from a unproduced play of Pfeiffer, same year. And Pfeiffer's a cartoonist, though, right? He's a cartoonist. So I don't know how much you know about Jules Pfeiffer. I mean, I I think we had like a collection of his cartoons in my house when I was a kid. New Yorker cartoonist. New Yorker. He started on The Village Voice. He actually, this is another Jewish connection. He started his career as like a teenager apprenticing himself to Will Eisner. Oh, of course. Who was sure this sort of uh, iconic, Legend. legendary, groundbreaking cartoonist. I would say he's like, I don't know that much about comics, but from what I know of him, he was sort of the D.W. Griffith of comics in that, you know, he just innovated the whole form into being the way that we know it now, basically. That's, I think, what people say about Eisner. He went to him and begged him to give him a job. He said, I just, I want to work for you. I don't care. I'll do anything. And so he gave him just kind of menial, because he didn't think he was very good. <laughs> um, he's like, this guy can't really draw that well. Uh, yeah, done, I don't know if he has any talent. So he gave him just sort of menial jobs to do around the studio. And that's how, and actually Jules Pfeiffer 
um, collaborated with him, or collaborated, did work on The Spirit, which was Weisner's comic strip, uh, the thing he's most famous for as a serial was The Spirit, and Pfeiffer actually worked on that, essentially as Eisner's apprentice. So that's that's So, so it works as stage play? Yeah, it was a stage play, and I did very well. And so I think this was not so crazy that they wanted to make a movie out of. And here's a little fun fact I found in my research, found a newspaper item. This was actually, I guess, a big enough deal that originally pegged to direct Jean-Luc Goddard. No. Yes. While I maybe even while the play was still on stage. What that movie looked like? I don't know. We could talk about it. I think there is sort of a new wavy element uh, at some point in this film, but we'll get to that. So that's sort of the setup. So there's a lot of Jews here. There's one Jewish character that we'll get to later on. And I don't know if you'd say there's a Jewish sensibility to this film in some ways, but there's a lot of theology definitely. And I think there's, even if it might not be the most Jewish film, I think there's a lot to look at from a Jewish perspective. Oh, to say the least, where do you want to start? Um, well, let's just sort of walk through it. Uh, I'm going to think we can give the highlights because the nice thing about this movie is that because it was adapted from a play, there are good long scenes. I mean, it's really structured around a fairly small number of scenes. And monologues, right? Almost always, almost all takes place in that apartment. Yeah. Uh, yes, the apartment is one major setting, but there are a few others, and it does get opened up a little bit from, I imagine, what you would see on stage. Not a whole lot, but a little, a little bit, uh, especially in some areas which maybe we can talk about. So. The movie centers around L.A. Gould's character, Alfred, who is an apathist. He uh, takes pictures of shit for a living. For Harper's. For all kinds of famous magazines, right? And he is found getting beat up on the street by Patsy, who is this fun-loving, optimistic woman that every man in town is after, apparently. And so she meets him. It's a weird meet cute, if you will. She finds him while he's getting mugged and she saves him. And then she starts getting mugged and then he doesn't save her. And she's horribly offended. She follows him back home and they start a courtship. And there's a little montage of them courting. And she has him playing tennis and golf and swimming and all kinds of stuff. And then they go back to her family, which is her father, played by an amazing Vincent Gardenia, um, her mother, played by Elizabeth Wilson, her brother, I can't remember that actor. That's the, I think, the only performance in this film that's not really quite on point, I think, but the character's so weird. Who knows? But who knows with that character, if it's on point or if it's not on point? Did there's, you get that character? Yeah, he's, yeah, there's definitely some sort of you know, closeted homosexuality around that character. The, 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 and around Carol, the father, that seems to be present. Anytime, they're always making jokes about swish or whatever. There seems to be 
I mean, I, look, I'll, I'll get into it. There's a lot about masculinity, I think, in this movie, overwhelmingly about masculinity, about family, and about the relationship between women and their partners, which I think perhaps is another dominant quasi-Jewish element that we can get into. The fact that the movie begins in an inverted way, right? Don't most movies begin with the man saving the woman? So there's the instant inversion of the gender roles, which comes at the top of the movie. And then I took some notes here. And then what does she say to him upon first meeting? So she saves him from getting beat up. And then she yells at him, what kind of a man are you? Are you a man? I don't know what you are. And I think that's the whole movie. What kind of a man are you? And then when you get to the ending, there's a certain level of masculinity that is that coheres at the end of that movie, which I think answers the question, or at least is a certainly a critique of toxic masculinity. That's interesting. I saw this movie as being more sort of plain political rather than being about gender politics. I think that's also because in my mind, I set it off against carnal knowledge which is the other movie that Jules Pfeiffer, Jules Pfeiffer wrote and was actually released the same year, which is only about gender politics, really. Oh, well, that's fascinating. All right, so we could have done a double bill with that because it's hard. It would be too much. I mean, yeah. Each of these movies is just, there's so much in each of them that would be way too much. But I think also, if we're going to step back, I think also we can talk about the setting for this film, which is a, I would call almost post-apocalyptic New York. It's, and it's only 1971. I mean, things haven't yet even gotten that bad in New right. York. If City. this was in 77, 78, it might make more sense. That's right. It would be more like Mean Streets or Taxi Driver or something like that. Or The Warriors, right? I mean, it, it, it's worse than that New York. There are just, it's just constant muggings and violence and shooting The Alan Arkin performance. If you really want to well, single out a performance that I didn't like, that's the one. You didn't nah, like it. I didn't like oh, it. Oh, I thought it's magnificent. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll get to that. But so the city is just awash in violence and crime and everything is failing. There are rolling blackouts. When, when he gets to her family, it's just the lights go out. And it, it's when you first see it, it's sort of funny. You're like, oh, is something wrong with this film? And then you realize, oh, no, because nobody really notices it or makes a big deal of it because clearly it's, it's just... It's part of the environment. That's right. Yeah, it just happens all the time. So my takeaway from this film or sort of what I thought were interesting themes or maybe the interesting theme is what happens when everything is broken? That's what kind of struck me. This is a world where everything is broken. Every institution, clearly the government, the city, just everything is, is broken. But why? It doesn't really matter why. Ooh, oh, well, I think, oh, well, I think we've broken all the men. All the men in this movie are broken. They're just busted, smash in half. Alan Arkin, Carol the brother, Alfred. The only man who stands up that I really like is the Donald Sutherland preacher. Obviously, I have a very natural affinity for him. 
but the men aren't great and the women um the women are just trying to sort of hold come things together. Come and get it. Come and get it. I always wanted to have a family because I always wanted to say, come and get it and have all the kids come and get it, the mother says. And Patsy, what a character Patsy is. I mean, so what does she say? I mean, what does she say to him? She saves him and he says to her, there's, there's no way to talk someone out of beating you up if that's what he wants to do. Right? So that's what he says to Patsy. And Patsy says, are you really so down on people or are you just being fashionable? He's, she says, no wonder you're depressed. He says, I'm not depressed. Well, he has no feelings at all, right? He's completely shut down. And that's why she's interested. She says, every other guy in this town is after me. They call, they breathe heavy into the phone. Every other guy in this town is after me. I have, but this, but he's not after me. He's not interested in me. And that is, she, that's a challenge that she wants to, that she wants to take up. Yeah. She wants to fix him. That's correct. That's right. Why can't I just have a big, strong alpha male who I can take care of and feed? And, right? I mean, that's, there's, there's an inherent contradiction in what she wants. She wants to be the caregiver who nurses and cares like a baby. There's an infantilizing of the men in this film. That the women want to care for their men like babies and like children, but then they're upset when they actually act like children. And she wants to, I, I, I thought she just wanted a project, you know, she's just one of those people that, that, it, you know, needs always to be busying themselves with something. I mean, that's the way that she copes, right? All, all the she's different, a fixer. yeah, different characters in this movie kind of cope in different ways. And he copes by just shutting down and just not letting anything in. She copes by essentially ignoring the fact that everything is broken and just busying herself with as much as she can, really. Uh, other characters, when we get to them, they cope in, in different ways. But it's, it's clear they're in this... The movie reminded me in some ways of uh, Children of Men. You seen that film? Recently, actually. Yeah. That there's a scene when they come out from the, the family where they're walking down the street and there's just horrible things going on around them and, and you know, uh, cops and, and, and there's like things seem to be... Like they're on a date. On and there's fire. A fire and right. Yeah, just everything. And that reminded me of Children of Men when, you know, there are scenes where they're just walking down the street and you can just see behind them just chaos and it's in some ways the same kind of world i mean children of men takes place in a world where nobody can have babies anymore and therefore everybody has lost hope right that people are spiritually broken in this in kind of a similar way that i think people are spiritually broken in this film they have essentially lost hope well i don't know if they've lost hope they seem to keep going Somehow, right? Everybody does seem to cope somehow. And, and, and it doesn't seem like everybody has quite... The only person who's really lost hope is Elliot Gould, Alfred. He has lost hope. He's just like, there's no point. There's no point. Everything is futile. Uh, what's, why should I feel or love or anything? It's, it's, it doesn't matter anymore, right? He's a, kind of a nihilist. Completely. 
Well, he, well, he's just given up on the fact that there's anything to be gained from this reality. And, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's interesting. He doesn't fight back. He refuses to protect himself. And I think that that comes up time and time again. He will not protect himself. He will not fight back. There's one wonderful scene where they're arguing in the cab on the way to the wedding. And Carol, the father, is arguing with uh, Elliot Gould, with Alfred about the name of the deity in the, using the name of the deity in the ceremony, uh, which Alfred didn't want to do. And Carol is arguing with him and he's saying, but if you're so against you, uh, naming the deity, then, you know, you must have some, that deity must mean something then to you if you're against it. And Elliot Gould's response is perfect. He goes, I told you I wasn't a very good arguer. Which is just like perfect for him. Yeah, I'm not a good debater. Yeah, it's sense. just like, oh, yeah, whatever. My logic doesn't work out. I'm not a good debater. And I just thought, oh, that was really it touched me. I'm going to try that, though. I think, I think it's a I great... Like, it's pretty good. She's like, you know what? You're a better arguer than me, but I still believe what I believe. I can't defend my point, but yet it's my point. No, I'm not I can't or I can't. I just don't want... I don't, I don't want to. I'm, I'm not going to, right? I'm not... I'm no longer... And this is a, it's a wonderful way to end an argument is just to say, I'm not going to argue anymore. And he does it, it, that's a very elegant way of doing that. I is, like is that. saying, I'm not a good debater. Yeah. And then that's the end of the conversation, yeah, sure. right? And that's a conversation that's ender. Right. Um, so, well, let's talk about, you want to talk about the first family interaction, that first scene. So there's Vincent Gardenia plays Carol, who's the father, who is Archie Bunker, basically. He's like a Manhattan Archie Bunker. He's a little bit upscale Archie Bunker. I mean, he's Archie. He's Archie Bunker uh, without the guts. I mean, I, I, Archie Bunker's a stronger character. Carol is, he's a broken man. He's too flailing. I mean, he's a broken man, Carol. I mean, uh, it's just, I don't, uh, I, he's lost. Yeah. Flailing is the right word. Okay. So that's Carol. Then there's his wife. Uh, Mrs. Newquest at a Newquests, who not is... Not a Jewish name, by the way. Not a Jew, no, absolutely not. Um, if, I mean, Vincent Gardinia, frankly, it seems a little too ethnic, if you will, for that character in some ways. I mean, I think they're supposed to be sort of white bread, right? And Vincent Gardinia does not come off as, as white bread. No. But he's great. I mean, he's, he's, he's great in the film, even though it's maybe a little casting against him. Well, everyone's big, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's a lot of big performances, but that's what's called for, I think. Yeah. So there's the wife, Mrs. Newquist, who just wants to make you know everything wonderful for the family. Then there's the brother, yes, who is this weird? You're forgetting Steve. You can't forget Steve. Steve. Steve's the older brother. Oh, the older brother. Right. I was going to get to the older brother. Sorry. Okay. There's the younger brother who is. Very odd. He just has a very strange affect, right? He seems defective mentally, maybe. He, he's bipolar. I don't know what. He's got every psychosis you can name. He's just, he's just very odd. Yes. I don't know what else to say about him. Very weird. Very infantilized. Yes. Yeah, definitely, right? He is like a little child, although he's a grown man. Well, they want him to be a child. I mean, that's part of where I'm getting at with this movie. Well, Patsy, too. That's right. Right? 
That's right. Then she comes in and like, oh, Patsy, 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 well, Patsy. Well, the Patsy, women Patsy. in the movie want to baby their men. That comes out through over. That's... And the father too. He does the same That's thing. That's right. And again, the, the brother is stuck there, and so he's sort of stuck in that role. And then there is Steve, the older brother, who, who was perfect. Who was a war hero. A war hero. Handsome. Look at how handsome he is. Right. Perfect. Dead brother. Killed on 96th Street. That's right. Right. So there's already death and tragedy that they mention and then move past. Right? Doesn't really come up again. It comes up so that we know it's there, but that's sort of it. And he has dinner with the family. Carol doesn't really like him. And then, is there more to say about... What's the like? He's, well, yeah. he's, he's a wet blanket. He's nothing. I mean, he's literally not even there. And he doesn't care about Patsy. He's just there because he's been dragged there. He's... You don't think he cares about her at all? You don't think there's something... There's something there. She says to him, somebody has to be aggressive. Like, somebody has to do the leading. And so she's just taking it upon herself. I forget the line, but she has this line where she says, you're the only uh, you're the only guy in town who doesn't want me to fix you, and that's why I'm intent on fixing you. Or there's some line like that. I forget exactly what the line was. That's basically her point that's of view. That's right. Though. That's right. And so because he wasn't begging to be fixed, then she had determined herself to fix him. Well, that there seems to be throughout this... That sort of, uh, yeah, I, I, carnal knowledge, I think, probably. Well, what's the gender perspective there? Oh, that men are just uh, awful, basically. I mean, that's, that, that is about how men continue to screw up women and screw up themselves in the way that they deal with women and, and how men or at least two men in that film are incapable of the vulnerability maybe that would be required in order to actually have a meaningful relationship. I haven't seen that movie in a while. I should see it again. But yeah, th those men are just um, disasters and filled with just rage and shame and everything awful. Patsy deserves better. Maybe. Probably. She does. But I liked Elliot Gould in this film. I think he communicates somehow, and it kind of comes out maybe later, that there is something underneath the deadness. There is a person there that all this stuff is just covering So stay over. with that for a second. So he says he first, let's talk about his career, because we only, he loves nothing other than his work, by the way. That's the only thing he loves is his work, and he admits that. So let's look at his work. He says he begins by shooting portraits, by shooting people. And then it gets too commercialized, and he loses the ability to shoot people. They all become fuzzy for him, so he can't shoot them anymore. So he shoots things. And things become crystal clear to him until he ends up shooting shit, right? And then at the end... Well, no, first he shoots computers. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Yes, talk about that. That's right. Right, which is... I, I'm just going to take a little bit of a aside here. 
this movie holds up depressingly well, I find, on the whole. I mean, it really hit home uh, watching it, you know, just uh, very recently. Just so much stuff really now resonates. Well, this thing of like shooting, well, computers, which in 71, I mean, nobody had a computer. A computer was like the most technocratic kind of meaningless right. what would be the complete opposite of shooting a centerfold would be shooting a computer that would be the total opposite right exactly so that sort of comment on just how stuff right becomes the only bearer of value in this world also i think after having gone through a lockdown a movie in which everybody is hiding in their homes and barricading themselves in because they're afraid to go outside and that that the world outside is just you feel the just sense of peril out there and everybody in, and inside begins to feel like a crazy hothouse madhouse totally so that also hit home a lot and also the way in which institutions have completely broken down nobody trusts them anymore i was i i was uh, also reminded as i often am of of course the big lebowski right in this movie the bums have won that's the situation it's not that the bums have lost and the bums will always lose right the bums have won those who have been trying to tear down all the institutions and and make sure that we don't trust anybody with any authority, they have won. That is yes, the situation. That's correct. I think that's right. The nihilism ultimately seeps in. And I think let's going back to the Alan Arkin police detective character where he's so lost at the end of that movie because he's intent on making meaning, right? So he's talking about crazy conspiracies. Well, the conspiracy theories, crazy. right? The whole thing. But but the conspiracy theories is interesting because when do people resort to conspiracy theories? They resort to conspiracy theories when there's they can't make meaning based on the facts that they have. So there isn't meaning-making facts available, so you create a narrative so that there's some meaning there. And so he's created this entire Alan Arkins character, the police chief, detective, has created this uh, narrative that uh, the murders are happening in order to undermine the police. You know, So you end up going to these crazy extremes to create meaning. And that's, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about children of men because you see the characters in this movie, Patsy, not... Not Elliot Gould's character. He's not trying to hold on to meeting, not until the end, at least. But you see these characters trying to hold on to some sort of meaning in a world that means nothing. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And Pfeiffer, I think, is just an amazing artist in that he, well, he creates... He doesn't believe in anything either. I don't know. I That's think he... I think it is too strong because he's he's painting a picture of what happens when you dismantle 
those bearers of meaning, and it's a hellscape, right? Good, good. Go to the wedding then. Good, uh, good example. Okay, so good example of that. All right, so uh, after he goes to the parents, then uh, they decide they're going to get married. But as you mentioned, Alfred does not want there to be any mention of the deity, and he says this on the phone when she calls her parents and says, "We're going to get married." Uh, she says, oh, we have to call Dr. Patterson, Dr. Patterson, Dr. Patterson the minister. And he says, oh, no, I do not want any Well, mention. I thought that was interesting. They didn't say we have to call a rabbi. I didn't have to say the priest. They said Dr. Patterson, which I thought was interesting, too. And then you get a man in the church. You would have assumed that there would be some sort of religious. No, it's the judge. Dr. Patterson, the judge. Go see the judge if you want to get married. No, no, no. The judge is, he's, he's Judge Stern. Dr. Patterson is a minister. I he missed a, that. Explain that. Yeah, yeah. He's a minister. So she that, said, well, how do they call... end up in the stern? They, they end because up in... he says, I don't want any God in this wedding. And so, well, okay. So, of course, Dr. Patterson's not going to work because oh, he's I a missed, minister. So they go to Judge Stern. So then I missed that shift. Okay. You have the scene with Judge Stern, who I love. This amazing scene. This character. And I want to hear from you on this. Lou Jacoby, he's a great, I mean, he's a great comic character actor, probably best known for his role in Everything You Want to Know About Sex, But We're Afraid to Ask, where he plays the cross-dressing, you know, suburban Jewish guy. That's probably his, I was in Diary of Anne Frank as well. So what do you want to know about Judge Third? I think he has a Jewish response, a very kind of traditionally Jewish response, which is, what do I do when everything is broken? I hold in my heart the memory of my ancestors, our persecution, their belief in a God in order to get them through that persecution. And who am I to turn my back on all of that after everything they went through. That is, I think, a certain kind of Jewish response that I think we still hear quite a bit today, no? Without question. Absolutely. And he definitely frames it. He's like, look, what do you do? You get out of bed, you put one foot in front of the next, and that's what our ancestors did, and that's what you're going to do, and how dare you, you know, not want to mention the name of the deity. That's right, because that would be offensive to him. But he still approaches me from the bench, and so maybe it's because I'm a former lawyer, but there's something so secular about the bench that I'm sort of struck by that, and I'm much more taken with the Donald Sutherland character, who gives the exact opposite message to a certain extent from Judge Stern, because he says nothing matters. Nothing matters. It's okay. Alfred could have affairs, and that too. Okay, you want to go to you want to go right. to Reverend Duke? Oh, come on! Of course, I want to okay. go. I, I, mean, thought wanted to, I thought you wanted to talk more about the one Jewish character. Ah, uh, well, film. I think but... you're being clever by 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 claiming him as the Jewish character. His name is Judge Stern. He's clearly Jewish. He talks about his Jewish parents who came over from. Russia, he's got a classic Jewish immigrant story to tell. In 1971, I'm sure there were thousands of oh, Jewish yeah. judges in 100%. New York City. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, also, the, I mean, the fact that he's a judge. Oh, yeah. 100%. Right, as well, is that he's 
at least trying to uphold some kind of institution in the midst of all this, you know, terribleness. But that's okay. We can move on. We can it's move all right. on. Well, I, I, I'm struck by the baby boomerness of this movie. Oh, it's so boomer. I mean, that sort of was such a big deal for me, really stood out for me. Because Pfeiffer saw what they were trying to do. Pfeiffer saw the emptiness behind all that nonsense, right? That all they were doing was tearing stuff down without erecting anything in its place. I guess Pfeiffer wasn't a boomer, certainly, but his work is, I mean, his, his, in his comics, it's a lot about that generation. And I think you can see it as a real satire and comment on that generation and, and taking it down a few pegs. Unequivocally. Uh, I, absolutely. And it was, you know, it's hard not to... You're, you know, your perspective, I just watched it again last night. I hadn't seen it, I don't know, 15, 20 years. But your perspective on the fact that that generation was trying to tear down the institutions and be left with nothing but the fighting on top of people over each other, right? That's depressing. You've depressed me. It's not a happy film. <laughs> It only gets worse. Oh, it certainly does get worse. So let's go to the wedding. Fine, I love the wedding. You know I love the wedding. The wedding is just, I mean, I, I mean, Donald Sutherland is the greatest. I love that man. I love him. Love him. I mean, it's the best scene. I, I, it's just, I, I've, I, I've used it before um, as a description of uh, what you don't want your wedding to end up as. When, why choosing a wedding efficient marries, matters. Uh, but... He's so in control of the wedding. So, like, I want to admire him as a as a preacher and as a pastor. The guy is in control of the wedding completely. And, and what is the, by the way, the institution that he represents? Did you catch that? Oh, no. What was it? First existentialist. <laughs> but it's interesting. He believes in God. That's the fun. That's the that's the part I like. He, I believe in God. He goes, look, Alfred doesn't believe in God. That's fine, and that too is all right. It's all right for Alfred not to believe in God. He's a accepting minister. The vows, the vows are priceless. The vows are priceless. When he goes through, I mean, just the look on Alfred's face. He's so happy with Donald Sutherland. He's just so happy with him. He, you see him smile for the first time because the two of them are on the same wavelength of the fact that the only thing that matters is just this moment right here. I don't know what's going to come before. I don't know what's going to come after. But this moment here, we can sanctify this moment. Whatever it is, you can be a thief. You can be how you, whatever it is, that's all right because we're alive and we're here. And really, this comes back to your last point, Asking for anything more out of this dystopian society is, is asking for too much. So are you sympathetic to his point of view? I just think he's really good at his job. I just think he's just really good at his job. He's just, he's, 
he's trying to create I don't know. I just I watched I don't know. I don't know if it's Sutherland's portrayal. I don't know if it's I've always wished I had the chutzpah to do something like that at a wedding, right? To just come up at a wedding and just just sort of take it over in that way. And it seems like there's a little game being run by I mean, obviously they just come off of MASH. So it seems like the whole thing is just a little game between Sutherland and Gould and everybody else is playing a big part in this wedding scene that the two of them are orchestrating. But then the way that he just devolves that whole scene into total chaos. Yeah, I just think is magnificent. Yeah, I see him as sort of a villain. Oh, you see someone as a villain? I kind of. Well, tell me why. Because he says, yeah, whatever you want to do. It's fine. It's all right. Yeah. Right? If the wedding, if the marriage fails, all right. that's all right. It's all right. If you, whatever you want to do. You have an affair, it's all right. You want to have an affair. It's all right. You want to, whatever it is. You want to burn down the house. It's all right. Everything is all, all right. right. And everything will work out. <laughs> it's such a lie. That's his. <laughs> it's, the biggest, it's the biggest lie in the movie. Well, and it's abdicating, I would think. Religious, his religious responsibility ab- as a religious leader. They don't leader. want him for that. That's not why they want him. They never would have chosen him if he was trying to assert any sort of religious authority. He's He's meeting the couple where they are. That's what they teach in rabbinical school. Oh, you think so? So you don't think this is what he preaches every Sunday? No, he says, Sunday, I believe or... in God. He says, I believe in God. But he says that Alfred doesn't want me to mention God, so I won't. Even though his um, father paid him $250. Uh, was it twenty? I think oh, it was 2500 other people, it was 2500 But we know that his... He likes to do two fifty. Uh... That seems to be... That comes up throughout the movie, especially towards the end. When he gives Alan Arkin, two, he tries to give Alan Arkin 250 bucks. Right. So he pays he feels him. Bad. He tries to give away his money. I, mean, I don't even know how Carol has his money. That's not explained, is it? No, it's not. He seems to have money. That seems to be, right. That's somehow, right. but it's not clear how, where he gets it from. Okay. So you like him because you think that he's, he's cool. He, he has he's convictions. Cool. He looks cool. He's, oh, he's got very great cool. hair. Yeah. The he looks awesome. Thing. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, he looks tremendous. <laughs> and he's very smooth. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And everybody seems... I would of, have him marry me. Everybody seems... <laughs> everybody seems very impressed with him. He's a king in that scene. I mean, Sutherland is so amazing. I can't even get over it. Yeah, he's he's pretty great. He's pretty great. But then what happens? He There's like some melee breaks out. Of course. Well, because he calls out the son for being gay. He says, you know, he says to his brother, it's okay that you're homosexual. That too is all right. And then, of course, the, the brother goes after to fight him. And then they all start fighting with each other. And then you see the mother, beautiful ceremony. Someone walks by and says, they're a beautiful ceremony. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because you know what? Having done a lot of weddings in my time, no matter what happens, people will come up to you afterwards and say, beautiful job, Robert. What beautiful else are you going to say? Exactly. That's right. What else could you possibly say? That's right. And that sort of goes to your point in the midst of this craziness where literally people are piled in a melee in a fight. Beautiful ceremony. It's just like people will ignore the reality in front of them so as that they can maintain the illusion that they're living in. And come and get it, the mother. She wants to have that illusion of her as some sort of southern mother. Come and get it. Ringing the bell, everybody. That's the vision that she wants in her head. And 
she's going to try to stick to it. In fact, that's the last words of the movie is come and get it. Did you catch that? Yeah. Yeah. So they're married. Now, is, is this the point where they go back and her house has been broken into? Yeah, so they go back home. The house has been broken into, and Sutherland has the uh, not Sutherland. Uh, Elliot Gould has the best line in the movie at that point, which is, "You're not smiling." Right. He's how they get home. The house is broken into. Patsy's intent, no matter everything's what, everything's been stolen. Right. No matter everything oh, is gone. It's like there's like curses on the walls. Yeah, yeah it's horrible. It's graffiti. Oh, it's the worst scene you've ever seen. And Patsy is like, no matter what, because they go on this honeymoon, right? They go on the honeymoon, and she's riding the horse. And all she's doing is complaining about the taxes of the city. And then she says, for every bad thing, there are two, no four good things. Right? Then they get back home. The house is broken into. He says, oh, you're not smiling. But then right away, <laughs> she, it becomes a project. She says, oh, it's fine. We'll get, we'll get bedding from over here and we'll get the furniture here. And then this we can have to live with so This reminds month, me of an old Jewish rabbi story. This, this reminds me of an old rabbi story. So the old rabbi story is the guy comes to this, uh, husband comes to the rabbi says, oh, rabbi, my house is real. It's just such a, my kids, they tear up the place. The garbage is everywhere. The laundry is everywhere. It's a mess, food. It's just, just a total disaster. I have no peace of mind in the household. Rabbi says, okay, this is what you do. I want you to go and I want you to put two tick, two chickens. And I want you to raise those two chickens in your house. It's okay. Next week he comes back. He goes, I got the two chickens. I'm raising. He says, okay, go out and I want you to get a dog. Bring the dog into the house. Because that gets a dog. He says, okay, go out. I want you to get a goat. Bring the goat into the house. He brings the goat into the house. So now he's got two chickens, a dog, and a goat. He's like, he's like, Rabbi, the house is crazy. The goat's eating the upholstery. The dog is all over the place. The chickens, one of them has died. So okay, well, now remove the chickens, remove the dog, remove the goat. Guy comes back the next week and says, oh, it's so peaceful. It's so happy in my household. And that's what I thought of as I was watching as I was watching her getting broken into, I, I was thinking a little bit of that scene, how she's going to try to, you know what? It's just, uh, she's going to have perspective on it. Um, and that, that, that's what I thought of when she got back. But that line that he had, you're not smiling, was just perfect for me. But then you're right. She does pivot and she tries to make the best of the bets until she gets shot through the window. Yeah, well, which was abrupt. It was abrupt. Before that happens, though, well, there is... No, it happens really soon. Well, well, no, first, there's his awakening. First, he goes to visit his parents. Oh, I'm so happy. Right? He goes to visit his parents in Chicago. Yes. Which, and he's talked about his parents before. Uh, In fact, in the lunch with Mr. Newquist... He talks about his parents. He says, we've, we, we, we lost touch or we're not, we're not in touch. No relationship. Right. No relationship with him whatsoever. And he goes and, um, Patsy suggests that he go, she wants to find out who he really is. So she says, I have a questionnaire for you and I want you to give this questionnaire to your parents because I want to know, because he has like no memory of his childhood. Right? This is another thing. He's given himself amnesia somehow. And so she says, okay, I want you to give this questionnaire to your parents so I can find out what you were like as a child to, I guess, figure out how to fix you, basically. Right? 
So he goes back to his parents in Chicago, and it's a horror show. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What was the one question they couldn't answer? Anything. No, no, they had answers. They had... But they were not answers. Well, they were, they were academic answers. Oh, well, that was written about by Klein, and that's written about by Jung, and Freud talks about that. All of their answers are academic answers. Right. They don't... He asked them See, about... They have no human touch. None whatsoever. Right. I imagine them living in Hyde Park. Really smart. Right. Really? It sounded like the squid and the whale, almost. Yes. I think that is a good comparison. They, yeah, they don't seem to be able to relate to him as a human being at whatsoever. all. Whatsoever. None at all. That's right. But what, there was, there was, there was ah, forget the last line. The well, last line. some things like, you know, was I a happy child? Well, I think there was, that, that's the last question. Was I a happy child? And they have no idea. There was, there was some questions at the end, which were, required some sort of human interaction that they had no idea to answer. Right. Their last, I think, six, seven, eight answers are, I don't remember. That's right. They just start saying, I don't remember. I don't remember. And it's what's your... that? What is that about? What's going on there? What's the critique there? Academia? What's the critique? It's very weird. It's, it's something almost, it's, it's like against the psychoanalytic world. I don't know. It's a little bit Edward Albee, a little bit, right? The whole thing of like children and parents and the parents just don't, right? The his parents are terrible. Relationship well, is his completely parents are broken. Awful. I mean, those are awful parents. You almost feel for him at that point. Almost. I still think he's a terrible character. I do. Yeah, they are Patsy horrible. They're terrible better. people. Patsy still deserves better. Well, she doesn't want better. Well... Anyway, his parents are horrible. They, they, you realize clearly his childhood must have been. Never had a chance. Must have been a hell, right? Because he grew up with people who are incapable of actually caring about another human being. So, yeah, that's terrible. Then he goes back to Patsy. He has this long monologue about his correspondence with an FBI agent. This I had to watch a few times. It's odd. This is one of, that was one, this was one of those moments where I could see the panels in the comic, you know, like. What was the correspondence? Oh, this passed you by entirely. You, okay. It's a long monologue. He's sitting at his kitchen table and he goes in this monologue about when he was a younger man, he would protest. And he realized that he got onto some FBI list and that somebody was opening his mail. And so he starts writing letters to himself that he knew were going to be opened by whoever in the FBI is, is reading his mail. And he starts You're saying... Right. This is such an aside to the movie. That's right. Yeah, it's, I'm not quite sure what it's doing there. It seems like it's just a Jules Pfeiffer bit that he just loved and kind it's of put in here. It's, it's, it's a, a good, good bit. It's a good bit as a standalone, but it doesn't fit in the movie. And, and so he, he basically tries to establish a relationship with his watcher and trying to convince his watcher that he is a cog in a huge machine, <laughs> that he should... Until he does that, on a police Doesn't parade. he feel like a putz? Um, when he's given this horrible, menial job of reading some guy's mail, <laughs> when there are other people with less seniority 
who are, you know, advancing beyond him. And, and isn't he tired of being passed over and treated like nothing by his employers? And the letters go back and forth. And eventually the end of it is that he gets a letter that is, that has been ripped apart and then taped back together. And there's just one word that's been written on top of the letter he wrote, and it just says, please. And then he says, and I realized that if they are so unformidable, what is the point of fighting against them? And then, then he says, my favorite quote of the movie. You're depressing me more than the movie itself. Which is, it's dangerous to challenge a system unless you're completely at peace with the thought that you're not going to miss it when it collapses. Yeah, that's good advice for this year, don't you think, for this world. Well, yeah, I think that is a major theme. And again, this is the comment on that generation, right? That all they did was challenge systems. Well, this is what Carol says. Carol says, I wrote this down. It's not a matter of belief in God. It's a matter of belief in institutions. I'm a great believer in institutions, he says. That's right. Right, because he's the previous generation. And, and this is the other thing. I, I, it seems like Carol and Judge Stern, I'm not sure whether we're being invited to laugh at them and denigrate them or whether we're supposed to think that they have a point. Like, nobody escapes in this film. Nobody really looks good. Nobody looks good. Now, this is the quote from Judge Stern. God got my father up every morning. God got my mother up every morning to face another day of hopelessness and despair. That's the quote. Um, so it's a total baby boomer rip. It's just, he's just ripping on that generation completely for deconstructing a society and leaving nothing in its wake. I think so. I think if you've read a lot of Pfeiffer's work in comics, I think that's a running theme as well. I mean, a lot of his stuff is a satire on, on that generation. But anyway, to get to where yeah, go. you left off, he says, oh, I think I'm having feelings. She says, oh, say more. He says... I feel, it feels like worship. And she says, of God? And he says, no, of you. And she says, all right, I think you're getting somewhere. <laughs> they stand up, they embrace, and she is shot in the back by a sniper from across the street. And he is covered in blood. And here is another scene, which I imagine was not in the play, where he goes in the subway. This is a great, right? Amazing. This is up there with the subway. I'll put this with the subway scene in um, uh, Brother from Another Planet. You know that scene? You seen that movie? Oh, great movie. Uh, John Sayles movie. Brother from Another Planet. The, the, the premise is it's an alien that comes down and he looks like a, a, a black human being. And there's this whole race. It's all about race relations. And there's a scene where he's in the subway and Fisher Stevens, 
plays this guy who it's sits next to him people. and is doing magic tricks at card tricks and stuff, just showing him. And he's mute too, by the way. The alien doesn't, doesn't say anything. And he's doing card tricks for him. And then he says to him, and now I got another trick for you. I'm going to make all the white people in this car disappear. And the train stops and you hear 59th Street, Columbus Circle, next stop, 125th Street, and all the white people leave, this, leave the train, right? That, 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 that's maybe it's my true. favorite subway scene in any movie, but this one is also pretty great. He goes Taking in, a Pelham 123 is where Well, that's, that's beyond the scene. That's a whole amazing movie, right? Partial to that subway. Yeah, I mean, every, yes, every scene in that movie goes on the list. Turk but, 182. You want to talk about film. good subway? Have you seen Turk 182? I haven't seen Turk 182. Oh, that's enough. Okay, good. Pelham 123 is one of my favorite movies oh my God, ever. So, so great. Anyway, he goes in the subway, and, and it's what, like 20 seconds, maybe? He's covered in blood, and nobody Sits pays. Down next to people. Nobody pays any attention, right? <laughs> this is one of the best gags in the film. I don't know if it's a gag or if it's real. <laughs> well, mean, that's why it's such a great you gag. Know, <laughs> you could see something like that going down in a New York subway. Oh, my goodness. And then he, he's sitting there, he's covered with blood. He sits down, he takes he a sits seat, down. he takes a seat. Yeah, people are sort of looking at him, but they don't really pay any attention. Barely. And then he gets up, he gets out of the train. He goes to he the goes new up the, he, wait, he goes, this is the other, this is the, this is the punchline. The punchline is he's going up the steps out of the subway and coming down the steps is a man clutching his head with a massive head wound. And they kind of look at each other for a split second, and then he keeps going up, and the guy keeps going down. That's the punchline. And then, yeah, he goes to the new quests, and he's... I thought that was interesting that he went to the new quests. Doesn't say anything. Walks the new quests. What's well, a home. It's like a home. It's the only home he ever had, which is... Which is with that, I found endearing to a certain extent. His wife has been killed. He's totally lost. He's covered with blood. He's suffering from shell shock. And he, and what does he do? He goes to the only family unit that has. There's, it's like almost, as hard as this is to believe, it's almost like the source of warmth and solace that he's going to because that's the family that he can be in. And he goes, and what is, happens when he shows up there? It's like he's just, he fits in. It's like another child. Instantly goes back to being parented by this Well, they accept him. That's right. For the first time, really. Well, this, now the second child of theirs has been murdered. And he is catatonic, basically. Yeah. Right? He's just, I mean, if he was shut down before, now he's, I mean, literally catatonic. Can't move, can't speak barely notices what's going on around him, right? The father is, is, is spoon-feeding him food, right? And that he's in this state until, no, until Lieutenant Practice shows up. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we're going to, I don't uh, know. Let's argue. We might come to blows on this that's okay, one. okay, that's all right. Alan Arkin <laughs> comes in as Lieutenant Practice. Wait, he was the original director? He was not the original director. I mean, he wasn't the first pick for director of this film. 
I, this is like a one. Who was the first pick? Well, I told you, Jean-Luc Godard. Oh, right. uh, who knows how many directors there were in the interim before Alan Arkin wound up with it. Um, he's who not, is Alan Arkin at this time? Like, I know him. Like, who is oh, he then? Alan Arkin. 71. He's somebody already. He is one of, I uh, read one of, I don't know, four or six actors in history who won an Oscar for their first film performance. He won an Oscar for The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. That was his first film performance. Him and Anna Paquin. Um, oh, yeah, good call. That, must, that was de definitely one of the uh, other ones. Um, so he's already done that. He also won an Oscar for... What was the name of the film? He won an Oscar for for another film. Was he a director? As we, this no, is his first director? No, this is I'm pretty sure his first. Just like Ed Norton, we do we only we only do comedians who direct movies here Alan on the Norton's Jewish not frame. A comedian, <laughs> well, he was in that movie. He was in that movie, I guess. But yeah, Alan Arkin, not a, not known as a director, certainly, right? But again, a guy with enough clout, I suppose. All right. So, what do you think of his character? In the okay, so Lieutenant Practice. I think Lieutenant this, Practice is his name. Lieutenant Practice is his name. I think this monologue is amazing. Why? He is having a nervous breakdown for like 10 minutes. Maybe not that long. I don't know how long it is. But not I like sure. how he still bosses them around about he the bosses milk them and around. the ice. He, That's the funny. I mean, that, there's, that, that's really odd. He's on a hair trigger, right? Everything bothers him. He asks for milk. Then he needs ice in the and milk. Scotch. And scotch. And I didn't get cheese. This is the ice. You give me one ice cube. One ice cube. Get me out of here a little bit. Uh, and then he, he has trouble getting words. I mean, he literally is, is, is faculty of speech begins to fail him. He starts slurring his words, but not the way a drunk slurs his words. He's like, he's suffering some kind of aphasia. He's... I'm literally falling apart in front of your eyes. And it's not ballistic, right? It's, it's controlled and uh, meaningful and I think hilarious. But that's me. I don't know. What, what's funny about it? It's funny that the police chief is out of that. That, that the police chief is having that there's been two hundred three hundred sixty eight murders and that he can't solve them and what what that that the state of affairs has gotten so terrible that the lieutenant can't. So, I mean, what's funny about yeah. it? Yeah, what's funny about it is that he is that it's all happening in front of these people who are still respecting him, right? What's sort of funny is that he's having a nervous breakdown and everyone is very solicitous of him. Everybody treats him like the grown-up in the room. Everybody respects what he has to say and he's losing his mind. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's the comedy, right? If everybody was like, oh my God, no. what's wrong with you? It wouldn't be funny. That's right. Right. What's funny is that he's a policeman, and, and they so defer they, to him. they defer to him, even, even though he's a crack up. Even though, yes, he is a complete 
burnout case. And I love it. He says, he says, oh my God, I wasn't like this six months ago. <laughs> six, six months, months ago, I walked in the room. I knew what I was doing. You know, I, I, I commanded some sort of authority. But what, so what, was, and that's the what other has thing happened that's... in the last six months then? Well, clearly things have just gotten worse, right? Six months ago, it was a murder, right? And now he's got 345 murders that have happened in the last month. And, and also the di also the words are funny. He says, what do these three things have in common? One, and I think he holds up like four fingers, right? One, these things have nothing in common. <laughs> Two, there is no motive. And three, therefore, they are 345 unsolved murders. I mean, it's funny. You know, it's, it's language is comedic. It's funny. Um, and then he says... You know, what's the, usually we try and find the cause, but maybe we, here we should look at the effect. And the, what's the effect? A complete loss of faith in law enforcement. And then he says, well, therefore, it's some grand conspiracy. That's when he heads down the conspiracy. To bring down, That's right, to bring down law enforcement. Law enforcement is, is where that comes from. So, and then he starts, you know, just raving. Is Pfeiffer a nihilist? That's, I mean, that's my question. Does he, is he critiquing the destruction of meaning or is he pointing out the fact that there was no meaning anyway? No, he's not a nihilist. He's an artist. I don't think you can be an artist. I don't think you can be a nihilist if you're an artist. Artists create meaning. That's their job. So no, I don't think, I don't think the point of view here is, or what's being uh, proposed or praised is nihilism. No, I think quite the opposite. Like I said, I think what Pfeiffer is saying is this is the end result. This, if you take what people, and this is early, it's just 71. I mean, things haven't even really started to get well, They've They've bad. assassinated a bunch of people. Was, yes. I mean, 68 and 69, right? I mean, already there have been horrors. There's been Vietnam. But in terms of the complete breakdown of faith in institutions, it's still fairly early days. I think you, you really, that still has, there's still quite a bit of room for that to play out. But, and, and this, and this wasn't 71. I think the play must've been 69. Maybe even, I think 68, 69 was the play. So this script is, is even earlier. So I don't think he's, again, because he is a great artist, he's not just pointing to what's happened. He's, he's saying, this is the road we're on, and, and this is where it leads. We, and aren't we there, Ben? Aren't we there? No faith in institutions, breakdown of society, breakdown of law and order. You're right. It's a perfect movie for 2020. It all comes around again. Well, that's the danger of tearing down institutions willy-nilly, isn't it? So then... After Lieutenant Practice, Alfred goes for a walk in the park. And this is another point where it breaks out. This, you couldn't have done this scene in the play. This is, this is one of the few really kind of more cinematic moments. And this is the moment that I felt was very new wave. You could have, this, this, this scene felt to me very European. He's in the park. There's the modern jazz quartet playing on the soundtrack which is very cool and hip and, and beautiful. 
and he's taking pictures of people and scenery and a lot of handheld, right? They, they, you, you see the stuff and you see it's a lot of it's from his point of view and it's all handheld. I mean, this could have been directed by Jean-Luc Godard. This, that scene, I felt, could have been a Jean-Luc Godard uh, scene. That's right. And Well, because he's looking for what he's in focus. That's what I was looking I'm watching that scene trying to figure out what's going to fall in focus for him now. Right? Because before it was things. First it was people. Then it was things. Then it was shit. And at the end, he's... What's people again? Yeah, that's right. He's seeing people. He's seeing the beauty of the park. He's seeing these interesting people that you can tell he sees as interesting. And it's this hopeful moment. And that's where I thought the movie was going to end. I thought as well. This reminded me... If you I seen, really did. If you see... Even, even on second viewing, I thought the movie would end there. <laughs> have you seen Sound of Metal? I have, yeah. Do you remember that, the scene at the end, of the, uh, very much like this, right, where he takes the, the implants, the auditory implants out, and everything is silent, and he looks around, and he sees the birds, and the buildings, and the people. And the movie ends, right? And then the movie ends. That's right. That's how they did it in that movie. He has, he that's opens. That's I thought was going to happen here. Right. He's able to open his eyes and see what's really there. And that's the I ending. I saw there was only five more minutes left. I thought that was just credits. Right. That's right. Turns out not so much. Turns out he gets, a, you see him come back to the apartment. He's got, he's got flowers in one hand and a rifle in the other. Why did he buy the rifle? When they ask him, why did you buy it? From, you remember what he says? What does he say? Because it was on sale. <laughs> so he shows up with a rifle. With help, they put it together. They load it. <laughs> the, the putting it together. I honestly thought they were going to shoot themselves. I mean, it looked like a much. <laughs> it looked like people who've never touched a gun. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> but they have a manual. <laughs> That's right. They have the manual. And they figure it out. <laughs> and they go to the window and they bash out the glass in the window and they start shooting the people down below. And they kill Alan Arkin. And they do they? Oh, they said they killed Lieutenant Practice. Okay, they kill Lieutenant Pregnus, they kill a whole bunch of other people. That's right. And they are overjoyed. Oh, they are hugging each other with affection that has not been seen at any point prior in that movie. I don't know. Patsy and the brother, they kind of roll around on the ground together. They're sort of affectionate. But they are happier than they've ever been. You can tell, right? They are happier than they have ever been or can ever remember being. And they sit back down at the dinner table. He is now part of this family that he loves and that love him. It is just a gut punch. It's terrible. Uh, it's, it, it made me think of toxic masculinity, though. That's really how that movie ends up. With... Uh... Because the men's lives are so dominated by the women in this movie that when they're actually allowed to, like, tap into some masculinity, which Alfred never does, he's refusing to fight back. He refuses to defend himself. He refuses to protect himself. And then there's this... I don't know exactly what Pfeiffer is saying, but he's making some sort of critique on male bonding. 
like nobody's business at the end of this movie. So what's that message? What is that going to say? What does that, what does that tell you? I don't know. Men are bad, that they're toxic, that they only really feel at home. Either you, they're dominated by their partners. And by the way, we might know some Jewish men dominated by their partners. Or they stick up for themselves with guns. And we know that, I mean, do you want to talk about this movie being a good 2021 movie? Look, look, problem with guns that we have in society today. And guns, you know, clinging to your guns in your Bible, this idea of guns being the quintessential masculine sort of thing. I mean, it's, it, it, it heads right back into there in terms of its timeliness. You don't read it the same way. You've got to... No, I, I read it similarly. I don't know that it's so tied up in gender, but I totally get what you're saying there. I think it's... Well, it, it, it's if catharsis. If they went out, if Carol took Steve, whatever the... Shooting duck honey. Well, is it the guns or is it the violence? Because I see the violence as a... It's a catharsis. It, it allows them to express something, to have a release that is not accessible to them any other way because they are or feel just trapped. Like, what, what should they do? What is the appropriate response? Move. But that's the one <laughs> thing, but that's the one thing the lieutenant tells them not to do. Whatever you do is don't leave this space. But there's nowhere to move to. There's nowhere to go. The world is broken. In a, in a broken world where every institution has failed you, what is the appropriate response? I think that's kind of the question this movie asks. Well, you shouldn't have broken institutions beforehand because it's back to your quote. Break those institutions, you better be prepared to deal with the repercussions of not having any institutions. So is that the rabbinic wisdom here? That the answer is to build something? Because well, I nobody it's a lot to easier do. to deconstruct something than to construct something. And that's sort of the lesson here. You can tear down a whole society, even if it's based on, you know, my ancestors getting up because they're so depressed. And, you know, what, what, what did the Judge Stern say? Like, we... Whatever it was, like, even if it's based upon that, at least it's, for the, inst we get, okay, so look, we're in a shul. Okay, so let's, like, we're in a shul here. Shul's been around for 100 years. And people, the shul's not been perfect for 100 years. Right. This let's, is Congregation Beth Shalom in San Francisco. Let's be honest, the shul's not been perfect for 100 years. And so because it hasn't been perfect, people are like to heck with you. You're a shul. You've made mistakes. You've made me feel bad. And I'm going to throw it. And I think as a result, we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, I think where you know where they are get totally lost here, when you know things are bad and maybe irreparable. Do you remember what's happening when Lieutenant Practice shows up? What's going on in that apartment? There's all this noise because they are erecting steel shutters 
on all of the windows. That is what happens essentially right before the end and the worst possible ending is they barricade themselves in. Oh boy, boy, you really, I mean, I talk about 2021, there you go. We're barricading, and by the way, they're barricading themselves in, why? Because they don't trust anybody. There is no trust for anybody else in society. Trust is gone, obliterated. There's no one left. There's no, they can't trust the police. They can't trust the government. They can't, nobody really believes in God anymore, right? They, the religion is, I mean, this is a godless universe, clearly, that they're living in. Religion's over. The children of men analogies fast because it is kind of like, what's the next generation here? There is no next generation. You just have a bunch of, you have a bunch of people taking care of adult babies. That's kind of how the movie ends. Well, everyone's just getting by. I mean, look, there's so much They want to maintain here. its family movie. They want to maintain the family unit. This idea of the... New Quist's mother and the father with the kid. So Steve dies, Patsy dies, now they have Alfred, and he just fits into their little family unit. And they're going to keep infantilizing Alfred. And there's no funeral. I never thought. I didn't I think never about that until it. just no, this minute. No, there is. There's no funeral. There's no mourning. None. That scene is not in this movie. I'm not quite sure what that says, but it's clearly not healthy. That's wild. And everything, in fact, I think they, there is, in this family and in this world, there is no mourning for everything that's been lost. Everybody just tries to move on. And so they kind of forget, I think, what they've lost. And every day... They just imagine that the world that they're in is the only world that there can be. That's because it is. Well, I don't think that's a Jewish answer. <laughs> well, they're accepting it. They're, they're, they've sunk into it. They've pulled out the guns. They've started shooting the people on the street. I mean, that's just the way it is. They've, I think it's they've given up on meaning. I understand the ending is, you know what? We've tried. We've lived by those laws and fabric of society. And we've gotten the shaft because we've lived by it. And so now, screw it. We don't have to live by those rules. anymore. We're going to shoot and kill people indiscriminately, just like everybody else. And we don't have to be a light unto the nations, the special people who are carrying some sort of, you know, eternal truth. We're just going to get down and kill everybody like the other ape men. And the, I mean, especially this year or, you know, this era. I mean, Vincent Gardenia's tirade. What does he say? He says, build a wall. Let's build a wall around the city and have cameras everywhere. And what does he scream? I want my freedom. I mean, it's, it's just, it's aged remarkably well. Scarily. Scarily well. That's that's hard to 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 take down uh, to take in that what you just said there is hard to take in. That's correct. I think we've 
gosh, boy, to, to imagine we're 50 years later at the end result of that Pfeiffer movie is really depressing. Well, I think we're back there again. I mean, I think we're, I think we're in that kind of cycle right now. I think we're at a, you know, I think we're at a late, I don't want to get topical, but I do think that we're in sort of a late stage, late sixties, right? I mean, one of those sort late of late stage capitalism, disruptive sort of moments, right? No I mean, question. that was a disruptive moment. We've been through a global pandemic and all kinds of other, uh, weird I, that's right and disruptions I, and i think this so i guess i mean why i'm here at congregation Shalom is i feel like this response will be the opposite this generation will be institution builders as opposed to institution tinker downers well you started by asking why this film you know is jewish is it a why is this a jewish film and i think it's a jewish film because it's an anti-jewish film that's my read is that all the responses that people t take in this film, with maybe some little exceptions. Judge, your Jewish character. Maybe the judge, but even his response is not really the best Jewish response. Because everybody's just trying to just, just get through it, one way or another. See, I thought this movie was funny when I watched it, but now talking to you, it it's is just funny. really depressing. It is, it is, what's known as a pitch black comedy. Yes. Yes. Is it in the canon? Let's, okay, we're going to go to categories. So first of all, how Jewish is this movie? On a, on a scale of, of one to 10, where? Four. You think only a four? Huh. I'm going to put it in a four. There's no identifiably Jewish character. They're married. Well, One. you're debatable. We'll okay. argue over Judge Stern being right. Jewishly identifiable. It was, it, that's fine. He's a very smart Jewish guy who decided to take a job as a judge and went on that career. That's fine. That's a total character. But all right. Uh, there are no, there, I mean, what, what's Jewish about it? I give it a six. Okay. So we're from It's got what? a Jewish director, a Jewish writer, a Jewish star. Uh, set in what was at the time a Jewish city, I think there's just a lot of Jewish rubbing off on this film one way or another. Carol Newquist is such not a Jewish character. That's true. But I think that's that whole family is a satire of sort of waspy emptiness that could not be a jewish you family you said it i'm glad right? you didn't say it that I could not be a jewish it. family or it would be very different it would be it would be a very different family if that was supposed to be a jewish family i think it's i think the jewishness is conspicuous by its absence well yeah there. absolutely it's also right? absent in elliot gould's character Yes. I mean, he's, I mean, that's a Jew. Elliot Gould? Yes. Well, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Married to Barbara Streisand as well at some point. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you think he is the greatest. Uh, you think? I don't think he's the greatest. No, you think he I is. I like him a lot. No, no, but you think, not the greatest. You think he is, historically, at any point in time, the most popular 
bankable Jewish actor that ever was. I think there is a serious argument to be made there. Um, I think there is a serious argument to be made. For a period of time, the most bankable Jewish are, are, uh, actor that Hollywood has ever seen. He's definitely up there. Is Barbara Streisand's? I don't know. No, I don't think she ever had to, I mean, look at what MASH pulled down. I don't think Barbara ever had a movie that pulled down as much money as MASH. Yeah. It's I unlikely. Think, yeah. But I mean, MASH was not successful because of Elliot Gold. I mean, I think he really became a massive star a on the back of that. Yeah. But he was a huge star. He was a huge star and a huge, clearly I still think there's Natalie Portman and Gal Gadot that you're going to have to. Gadot? Was it, is it, is it yeah, she's Israeli, not French. But she's still Jewish. Exactly. So I think she's a pretty bankable star. But you said not without Wonder now. Woman. She is. She is maybe now. I don't. I don't. Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. Maybe there are people who will go to see a Natalie Portman movie because Natalie Portman's in it, but not a ton of people. Oh yeah, she has fans. Oh yeah, a lot of dudes are really into Natalie Portman. Really? Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm trying to think of who else would be a Jewish character, who would, a Jewish actor who would be super bankable. Yeah, it's hard. Dustin Hoffman. Maybe. Maybe, but not, you don't hear, I don't know that you ever heard people saying, oh, I really got to go see the new Dustin Hoffman film. <laughs> right? <laughs> nah, I mean, at heart, he's a, a character Jew, actor. A Jew has never played James Bond. <laughs> That's definitely true. But also Dustin Hoffman was not often uh, leading Didn't mid. have those kind of roles. I mean, Kramer versus Kramer and Tootsie. Tootsie. So maybe. I can't, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But who... Gould was a big, Gould was a big star. Let's just, let's okay, leave so it at Gould's that. Gould's a big star. All right. Okay. So you gave it a four. I gave I, it a six. I asked four. It's okay. not the most Jewish movie I've ever seen. I gotcha. Okay. All right. So. I wouldn't put it in the canon. You would not put it in the canon. You would. Ah, uh, boy! There's nothing recognizably Jewish in this movie. Well, I would uh, I would tell you why I might I might put in a vote for put having it in the canon. I think you would need. I think it would be good to have a Elliot Gold film, in, in the canon, given his status as a Jewish film star. And I don't know what other Elliot Gold movie. Oceans. You. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, even less Jewish than this film. <laughs> I don't know what other movie you could put in there. So I might, I might vote for putting it in the, also it's just such a good movie. It's so good. And, and there's so much sort of theological and sociological and uh, political. Well, there's not enough search for meaning. A Jewish movie would have more of an attempt Again, I think this is, I think the meaning is, it's the empty spaces. I think that's, I think that's what the movie is about. I think the movie is about what you get when you don't think you need any meaning. I think the movie is about how meaning is critical and how institutions and communities, about how these things are what holds us together and without them everything goes to pot 
and we are living in the kind of world that we really don't want to see. I think that's what the movie's trying to say. I think that is a Jewish point of view. It just doesn't show you what that looks like. It shows you, because it's a satire, it shows you what the opposite looks like. So I think you could make an argument that that does actually have a very Jewish perspective, even though that's not what you see on screen. That was you at your most rabbinic. Yeah, okay. Well, see, I'm learning from you, maybe. <laughs> um, what's the part here, as I said, we said last time, in, you know, in Jewish texts, there are always parts that you don't like. Yeah. What are the parts that we preferred weren't in this film? Parts? I've got two. Prefer? Well, you start. Okay. One is the breather. This is not aged well. The, the, there's a running gag of her picking up the phone and there's a heavy breather. Until she dies. And when then, was until this? she dies. This was a thing for a while. Then when he I, calls back and says, I'm so sorry. Yeah, he called, right. That's the punchline that, to that running gag. But I remember when I was a kid, no, nothing, nothing's ever happened, but this was a thing in comedy, right? This was like a trope. That there was the that with these heavy breathers, and you would in, in TV and movies. Yeah, I don't get would, it. I don't. Was this ever actually a I'm, thing? I'm familiar with it being a thing, but I don't get why it was it. I don't get it either. And it doesn't. It it again, like you never said. There was a point where it just oh, this isn't funny anymore. I don't know when that happened, but I think even through the maybe early '80s, it was. I think it was a it was a comedic trope, right? Like oh, she picks up the phone and there's a breather. And yeah, then at some point, but what's Pfeiffer doing with that? Why, why is that? I think it's a cheap gag and I think it's beneath him. And, um, I don't even know if it was in the play. I mean, I think he wrote the screenplay though. So I think people used to find it funny and we just don't anymore. So that I wish wasn't there. Also the casual homophobia. More than casual. More than, but it's not it's all over the place here. Yeah. It's not supported. I mean, it's, it's, it's being sort of made fun of, but even so, yeah, I mean, Mr. Newquist's whole thing of swish, 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 all these men are, you know, called Carol, don't call me, don't the call name me Carol. Carol. And in fact, Donald Sutherland says, Carol Newquist, that's a name I haven't heard on a man before. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. even Sutherland points that out there. But also the whole thing of the brother that he's, you know, Clearly confused sexually. Someone says he's gay. Someone calls him out and says he's gay. Yeah, but there's no real... And then he attacks him for but that, gay, and that's what causes the fight. Gay is code, really, for just, I think, sexually questionable. You got no real... Re I mean, there's nothing there to support the idea that he's really gay. He doesn't say he's gay. I think it comes down to the masculinity thing. Yeah, that he's just not... He's just sexually... And that's why they have the guns at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that also is a little. Meh. Yeah, I didn't like. I didn't. I didn't care for that either. I. I still think Patsy deserves better. All right, that's my bumper sticker. Patsy deserved better than Elliot Gould. Okay. I just um, what 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 would I cut out of this movie? You have to think hard. I think it most of it holds up really well. It does. Frighteningly so. Uh, the, the the brother's character. The brother's character is just so hard to place and fit in, and it's just you could have done something with that character. I have a feeling 
maybe it worked better on with stage. someone else in that role on stage. Probably did. Right? It must have well, worked. For laughs. Right. Somehow. But on screen, it just doesn't, it just doesn't really, you, it doesn't add anything either. Especially when all the other performances are so great and so clear. It, it, it's, it's just, it's glaring. Tell me about the last one. Yes. Jewish geography. You got any Jewish geography here? I got, I got some. No, tell me yours. Well, one just interesting piece here is, as I mentioned, uh, Jules Pfeiffer, who also wrote Carnal Knowledge, came out the same year. And Alan Arkin started earlier in his career as, I think, maybe the first sort of class of Second City in Chicago. And Carnal Knowledge was directed by Mike Nichols, another Jewish director. Your favorite. Uh, not my favorite director, but, well, I, I, I you know, I, I like we'll Mike Nichols there. a lot. Um, we'll, we'll do a Mike Nichols movie I'm sure. sometime. Uh, he, uh, as a young man, got together with Elaine May at the Compass Players. That was the precursor of Second City in Chicago. And another Jew, Paul Sills, was the director of Second City. And actually I studied with him uh, in, 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 in New York. So, um, I've got a, a connection there as well. So that's my little piece of Jewish that's good. geography that's cool. for this movie. So stop for a second. What about Billy Crystal versus Elliot Gould? Billy Crystal was a big star. Wasn't he? He had a moment. He, he certainly did. He was for a minute. Remember City Slickers? I remember City Slickers. Not a great movie. Well, but Jack he, Palance was good. But it, it did well. It did very well. did very well. And Billy Crystal was sequel. definitely a Jack part Palance of that. Did those one-handed push-ups at the Oscars. When Harry met Sally, that was huge. But then what did Billy Crystal do after When Harry Met Sally? What did he, what did he do with all that juice when he had it? You know, where, what was, he didn't really have a follow through. And no, he's, no, he's not an Elliot Gould. He's not up there with Elliot Gould. He's not up there with Elliot no, Gould. No, he's not. That's just a fact. You know who I, you know who's the only, only other person I can think of? And you're not going to like it. Sandler. Yeah, no, I don't like that. All right. Well, we've done Little Murders. I've, I think so. I enjoyed it. This has been The Jewish Frame. We'll see you next time.